Pins and Needles, Part 12 Angela As her fingers worked the needle in a steady rhythm, Angela's thoughts were elsewhere. She was trying to decide what to make Granny from the lovely shirt with the bright patterns. Whatever she decided upon, she wanted it to be the best piece of work she had ever done. She wanted Granny to think of her every time she saw it. Granny wasn't coming to Australia. Angela had seen the disappointment in Mammy's face as Granny explained that she was only staying with them as long as it took to help them pack up the house and leave for Australia. Spain was our dream, she had said. Those last months there with your dad left me with so many lovely memories. I couldn't bear to think of leaving him buried out there alone, with no family to visit his grave. Anyway, it's like home there now. I have my friends and I have my routine. I drop into the graveyard every day and tell him all the latest news. Then I still feel him near me. I'm too old at this stage in life to move to the other side of the world. But your family will all be there. Tony, Angela and me, we'll all be there. If we're on the opposite side of the world, we'll be lucky if we ever see each other again. Granny had looked troubled, but remained silent. Mammy had stared for a moment, and then shrugged. She walked over to the kitchen counter, picked up the kettle, and began to fill it at the sink. Tea? she asked, as if the conversation hadn't taken place. Thanks, love, Granny had said, and Angela felt as though she had missed something. Now Mammy was in the room that used to be Daddy's little office, typing on her computer to find the cheapest company to ship their things to Australia. Mammy always seemed to be busy with the move these days, but Angela had Granny. These evenings had become even more special to Angela because she knew she didn't have many of them left. At that moment, the sun dipped below the level of the house across the street, throwing the room into shadow. Granny reached over and switched on the table lamp. This had come to signal the end of their work for the day. Angela could feel Granny watching her as she brought a line of neat tiny stitches to an end and, with her tongue protruding from one corner of her mouth, knotted it off. You've gotten so good at that, Granny said as Angela handed her the work for approval. Granny turned the small cloth purse in her hands for a moment and Angela watched anxiously. How absolutely beautiful! She smiled, and Angela felt her face flush. Now you put these bits and bobs away while I start the dinner. I'm sure your mum will be finished soon, and if I don't cook, she forgets to eat. Angela waited until her grandmother had left the room before starting her routine. First, the big things, such as scissors and knitting needles, went into the wooden box. Next came the spools of thread. She made sure first that any stray strands were rewound and then she arranged the spools in order from light shades to dark in their groups of colours. Finally, she took the dirty, worn pincushion, vaguely recognisable as the stuffed cloth hedgehog it had begun its life as, and carefully began replacing the pins and needles into its back. She was struck with a sudden idea. Granny's gift would be a brand new pincushion. Smiling, she reached into her own sewing bag and pulled out the special colourful patterned shirt. She spread it wide on the floor and considered it for a moment. The patterns were all wrong for another hedgehog, so it would need to be something different. With a pen, she began tracing an outline. As usual, she started with no fixed idea. Granny had told her that the pattern was called Paisley. She let the pen find its way, 
concentrating on making smooth lines and curves. When the end of the line joined the start, she sat back and looked at what she had drawn. It was the figure of a little man. Taking the scissors, she began to cut out the shape. Lisbon, Portugal. Father de Lucci. A disembodied but friendly voice called for the window blinds to be opened, seatbelts fastened, tray tables stowed, and seats to be returned to the upright position. The priest strained to make out features from the patchwork of lights below as the plane descended smoothly from inky blue cloudless skies to touch down in Lisbon Portela Airport. He found himself joining in with the burst of applause that followed the jolt of the wheels making initial contact with terra firma. The common euphoria was soon converted into impatience, however, when a late departing plane occupying their allotted gate found them sitting motionless on the tarmac for an additional ten minutes. When they did finally move, the plane, a creature of the skies, removed from its natural environment, seemed to take an eternity to trundle its way to the terminal building. The ensuing pushing and jostling to get out of the aircraft was repeated in a jockeying for position at the baggage reclaim area, as suitcases and bags of every shape, size and colour spilled onto the conveyor belt. When his backpack tumbled out, Father Delucci noted that it was undeniably quite a bit larger than the average piece of luggage. He wrestled it onto a luggage cart before making his way through passport control and into the arrivals hall. It soon began to dawn on the priest that Portugal might well prove something of a culture shock. Like most North Americans, he was quite used to the Central and South Americans talking amongst themselves in Spanish, but in his world, those who couldn't also speak a good level of English tended to be seen as disadvantaged. English was the verbal currency that made everything go around. Here, however, the tables were turned. His journey from the airport to Santarém by train was fraught with anxiety. The man in the ticket office spoke no English. The signs were all in Portuguese, as was the robotic voice on the train's intercom that announced the next stop. He spent the one-hour train journey from Lisbon Oriente peering into the gloom at each station in an attempt to catch name signs, in a permanent state of semi-panic, in case he missed his stop. Finally, though, he found himself standing with his backpack on the platform of an old country train station. Apart from a few buildings leaking light from shuttered windows, it seemed like a desolate spot. He checked the sign again. It was definitely Santarem. Outside the station, three taxis stood in a line, their drivers leaning on the middle vehicle in animated conversation. The priest approached the first car in line, and one of the men hurried over, helping him out of the backpack straps. Father De Lucci showed the taxi driver the address he had printed out. The man nodded and hoisted the backpack, with great difficulty, into the trunk. Soon after pulling away, the car began to ascend, and before long it was winding its way through the narrow streets of the city. The priest gazed with a mixture of anxiety and interest at the unfamiliar writing on the shop signs and at the crowds sitting outside restaurants, looking so un-American. At first he couldn't put his finger on the difference, and then it came to him. The clothing colours were muted, and there were little or no brash brand names printed on them. Another thought struck him, and his hand dropped unconsciously to his stomach. The Portuguese, he had to admit, seemed generally more trim than North Americans. The taxi moved now, out of the business area and along a road with little to attract the priest's attention. 
a wave of tiredness began to wash over him. He was just feeling his eyelids grow heavy as the drone of the car's engine lulled him towards sleep when they reached his destination. The Santuario de Nossa Senhora da Paz was one of the many Gothic Romanesque buildings that gave a sense of historic importance to the city. The taxi had pulled up at an entrance on a quiet, tree-lined street, and Father de Lucci, wide awake again, was plunged into further difficulties as he tried to make sense of the euro notes that now filled his wallet. Finally, against his better judgment, he fanned out a handful of them and let the taxi driver take his pick. The little man then bounced out of the vehicle, popped the trunk, and hauled the priest's oversized backpack onto the cobbled pavement. Gracias, said Father de Lucci, realising even as he said it that this was a Spanish word. You're welcome, replied the man. The ancient wooden door, with its black iron fittings, failed to give under the priest's shove. There was a bell to one side, with a rope dangling from the clapper. The priest checked his watch. It was approaching 2am. He left his backpack propped up against the doorframe and wandered around the building. It was surrounded by a high stone wall. At the back, there was a wrought iron gate, but this was padlocked. He peered through and saw that some of the upper windows of the building showed light. After ten minutes or so, he arrived back at the main door, determined to ring the bell, now that he had evidence that people were awake inside. He paused, with a hand on the rope, and listened. All was deathly quiet. Father de Lucci released his grip. With a sigh, he unclipped the mummy sleeping bag from under his backpack, took it from its protective cover, and began rolling it out on the ground. The priest soon realised that sleep would be impossible on the hard cobblestones. Experimentation finally resulted in him adopting a half-sitting position, supported by the backpack, that was somewhat less agonising than lying down. Before his personal crisis, he would have offered any such discomfort up for the release of the holy souls in purgatory, but, suspended as he was between faith and disbelief, it seemed hypocritical. He was, it dawned on him, in a purgatory of his own construction. He was discovered shortly before 5am by Frade Chico, who was on an early morning mission to the local bakery to get the monks' ritual tray of pastel danata, a sweet confectionery that they treated themselves to each Sunday morning. Ah, uh, you must be the American. We were expecting you yesterday, said Frade Benedito, the abbot, clasping both of Father de Lucci's arms and, to the latter's great discomfort, planting a kiss on each cheek. The pastel danata, Father de Lucci decided, were worth getting up at 5am for, as he munched his way through a second, washed down with strong sweet coffee, Frade Benedito discussed his impending journey. How far do you intend to walk? The priest blinked. A well to Santiago. The abbot smiled. Of course, but from which point will you begin? Oh, I hadn't really thought about that. When I was planning the trip, it was suggested that the first thing I should do was come here, and I presumed that this was the start. The abbot smiled again. The Portuguese way begins much further south, but there is no necessity to start there. Many people who are not... The priest couldn't help noticing the abbot's appraising look, which left him feeling that he had been measured and found wanting. Used to walking long distances, begin at Valenza on the border and walk the rest of the way from there. Is that not... Uh, well, cheating? asked the priest. Oh no, to receive your certificate you need to walk at least 100 kilometers. From Valencia to Santiago is somewhat more than that. 
Since arriving in Portugal, Father de Lucci had been sinking under the ominous feeling that he had plunged in out of his depth. Suddenly, he felt lighter. How long does it take from there? The abbot considered. There are fast walkers who can cover it in three days. For you, especially with that great big bag of yours, I would allow five or six days. I'd planned on spending more time than that away before returning to Boston, said the priest doubtfully. Of course, you'll want to spend some time in Santiago when you get there. It is a wonderful city, and why don't you spend a few nights here with us before you start? Frade Chico will be delighted to show you around. There are many curiosities. For example, in medieval times there was a Christian knight who died and was buried in one of the city's churches. His Muslim lady visited his tomb every day for the rest of her life. When she passed away, they could not bury her in the church with him as she was not a Christian, but because of her dedication, they made her tomb on the outside wall of the church beside his so that although he lay inside the church and she outside, beneath the ground, they lay together. It is worth seeing. There is a great view from the park there of the surrounding countryside and quite a nice restaurant. Also, we have wonderful underground passages beneath the city. And of course, there is the Portuguese food. You must spend some time sampling our cuisine. Then, when you are ready to start your walk, we can drive you to the border and see you safely on your way. It is not so far by motorway. In this way, at least you will have seen something of Portugal and our culture, because after Valença, you will be in the Spanish province of Galicia. Well, said Father Delucci, if you're sure that it wouldn't be too much trouble, that really sounds delightful. <laughs> 